now's a good time for us to kick things off. Welcome, everybody. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. This is an atypical fireside chat, as you might have already inferred. Our uh, special guest lost power immediately before we connected. We had her house illuminated in true fireside chat fashion with candles galore. And then one minute before we clicked broadcast, there was light. And so we're back. But we are still broadcasting from our presenter's phone. And I will be navigating the slides. And I thank you in advance for your patience and generosity. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest tonight. We have Jen Mannion, a professor, an associate professor of history at Amherst College. They are a social and cultural historian whose work examines the role of gender and sexuality in American life. Dr. Mannion is author of Liberty's Prisoners, Carceral Culture in Early America, which was published by Penn in 2015, which received the inaugural Mary Kelly Best Book Society for Historians of Early American Republic, aka Sheer. Their most recent book, Female Husbands, A Trans History, published by Cambridge this very year, and the subject of this talk, was supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Dr. Mannion has published dozens of essays for popular and scholarly audiences and serves on the editorial boards of Amherst College Press, Early American Studies, and the William and Mary Quarterly. They are currently chair of the OAH. Committee on the Status of LGBTQ Historians and Histories. Dr. Mannion is working on a two-volume series, The Cambridge History of Sexuality in the United States, with co-editor Nicholas Syret. Previously, they worked for 10 years at Connecticut College as a faculty member in the History Department and founding director of the LGBTQ Resource Center. Dr. Mannion was Notably, an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow at the Library Company in 2005. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much for having me. I love the Library Company. In addition to my fellowship there, I've spent a lot of time uh, between the Library Company and the Historical Society, and it's just such an amazing uh, resource and place for early American historians. And more recently, I've been so proud of the work that Connie King has done to bring queer histories and histories of sexuality to the forefront. So thank you for having me. I apologize if the sound and video quality is not what it could be, um, but we, I thought we might lose power again, so we would just stay on my phone <laughs> um, so that we're not interrupted in our time together. So this talk is from my recent book, uh, Female Husbands, A Trans History, that Cambridge, Cambridge University Press published in March of this year. The transgender rights movement has achieved widespread visibility and recognition in the past decade. The turn of the 21st century has been designated the transgender tipping point, in part due to highly visible trans women celebrities, including Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner, pictured here. But if we turn back the clock to the 19th century, we find an era that belonged to female husbands. Female husband was a term used to describe someone who was assigned female at birth, transgenders, lived as a man, and married a woman. Female husbands assumed a legal, social, and economic position that was reserved for Anglo-American men in small towns and big cities in the UK and the US from 1746 until just before World War I. Female husbands were presented as shocking and controversial figures, often with headlines featuring the word extraordinary. They found joy and love in intimate partnerships with women, entering into legal marriages that were often recognized by the state. By their very existence, they challenged essentialist understandings of sexual difference. They demonstrated every day that gender was malleable. In their ability to flirt, charm, and attract female wives, they threatened the stability of the institution of heterosexual marriage. They lived lives that in contemporary terms might be described as transgender, non-binary, butch, lesbian, queer, bisexual, or asexual. They were often said to have assumed, quote, the character of a man. To say that someone transed or was transing gender signifies a process or a practice 
without claiming to understand what it meant to that person or asserting any kind of fixed identity on them. And so in this way, we see people traveling through life, establishing an ongoing and ever unfolding relationship with gender, rather than simply shifting between two unchanging binaries from female to male. Examining their lives unfolding over time, we can consider how circumstance, age, and prior experiences with gender influenced their present and future decisions, as well as how others perceived these changes. The first so-called female husband was Charles Hamilton, presented here under other names. A fictionalized account of their life was the subject of Henry Fielding's book, The Female Husband. They grew up in Scotland. At the age of 14, they put on their brother's clothes and presented themselves as male. Hamilton secured apprenticeships with two different doctors over the years, gaining knowledge and confidence in both their gender expression and their trade. And then they set off on their own, traveling to Southwest England, offering pills, ointments, and advice to anyone who would have them along the way. Hamilton rented a room in the house of Mary Creed, where Creed's niece, Mary Price, also resided. The two, Mary Price and Hamilton, became involved and were wed in July 1746 at St. Cuthbert in Wells, England. They then traveled the country as husband and wife. Just shy of two months of marriage, Mary Price resolved that she was done with Charles. She reported her husband to the authorities and claimed that she had just figured out that Hamilton was not actually a man. Mary Price testified that, quote, the pretended Charles Hamilton, who had married her, as aforesaid, entered her body several times, which made this examinant believe, at first, that the said Hamilton was a real man, but soon had reason to judge that the said Hamilton was not a man, but a woman, end quote. The community of Glastonbury requested that Hamilton be punished in the severest manner. Hamilton was sentenced to six months hard labor under vagrancy laws and then ordered to be publicly whipped in each of four towns where they were known to have lived. Hamilton was a grave threat and their ability to engage in sex with a woman as a man was at the heart of this threat. By their very existence, they exposed the instability of sexual difference and the imitability of heterosexual sex. News of such punishments, however, did not deter others from following a similar course. James Howe ran the White Horse Tavern in the popular region of London's East End with their wife Mary for over 20 years. They had both grown up poor and were put out to work by their families as teenagers. They worked on their feet at physically demanding labor every day at the bar and probably most days of their lives. Only by grit, sacrifice, collaboration, and some luck did they manage to build a successful business. They worked, paid taxes, went to church, donated to the needy, and socked some money away for the unpredictable future. Life was good, far better than either had probably expected, given the hardship and turmoil that marked their early years. James and Mary found love, companionship, and security in each other working side by side for the duration of their marriage, 34 years. Mary Howe knew James as a child who once lived in society as a girl. Together, they decided that James would transgender and live as a man so that they could marry and live together as a married couple. Mary knew exactly what she was getting into. Maybe it was even her idea. So much is said about those who visibly rejected gender norms and lived as men. So little is said and known about the women who loved them, lived with them, and in many ways enabled their gender to be socially legible. Mary's name is not mentioned in the popular magazine and newspaper articles that circulated about the couple for over 100 years. While the female husbands were deemed so remarkable as to merit a new category to describe them, their wives were offered no such importance. Rather, they were often viewed as normal or straight women who were victims of circumstances or who got swept away and deceived by one particular man. But there is no denying their queerness, 
especially for someone like Mary, who knowingly chose to marry a female husband. There are some timeless elements to the stories written about female husbands in the Anglo-American press from 1746 to 1910. When it came to reporting the news that someone assigned female at birth had decided to live as a man and marry a woman, certain questions were nearly always raised, whether in Europe's greatest city or America's tiniest town. Why did they do it? How did they do it? And did their wives know? Abigail Naylor and James Allen met while working in service as a housemaid and groomsman, marrying in 1807 in London. After numerous jobs, several relocations, and 21 years of marriage, things came to a crashing halt. James Allen was bashed in the head and killed by a falling piece of timber while working as a bottom sawyer for a shipwright in Dockhead, England in 1829. Allen was declared dead en route to St. Thomas Hospital. The end of James's life was the beginning of Abigail's nightmare. Not only had she lost her husband of 21 years and the primary earner for the family, the coroner overseeing the inquest, Thomas Shelton, struggled with the challenge that Allen presented. The medical students who dressed Allen's body declared Allen female, while Allen's coworkers, employers, and wife knew Allen to be a man. The state of Allen's legal sex remained in limbo suspended between competing claims from medical students asserting female anatomy and a lifetime of relationships, paperwork, and legal documents stating otherwise. Shelton held a copy of their marriage certificate in his hand as evidence to support his view. Quote, I called the deceased he because I consider it impossible for him to be a woman as he had a wife, end quote. Alan was dead and so there was no further punishment for them, but Abigail now became the object of scrutiny. When a female husband was identified, everyone wanted to know if their wives knew their husbands were female. Most wives in situations of great distress engaged in selective truth-telling and strategic cooperation to minimize violence or harassment. Here you can see a letter that Abigail ran in a local newspaper in self-defense. In asking if the wives knew, authorities and reporters were also asking a question about sexual intimacy. Wives in long-term relationships certainly knew the truth of their husbands. The suggestion that they did not, and the desire of reporters and the public to believe it is quite absurd. But the question was a crucial part of the reporting of female husbands and their wives. It established distance between the pair. It allowed readers to imagine that their relationship was a sexless one. The alternative, that they had experienced great sexual satisfaction together, was simply too dangerous. In most accounts, newspaper editors left the question unresolved, knowing that it might motivate readers to buy the next week's paper. Newspapers played a crucial role in the circulation of information about female husbands. In the 18th century, they reported a wide variety of local, regional, and even international news. By printing news of female husbands, the press asserted the inclusion of this group in civil society. All types of British newspapers reported on female husbands, from late 18th century dailies devoted to advertising, to the established papers aimed at middle-class interests, to the cheap late 19th century weeklies. The North American press was no more discriminant Features about female husbands can be found in 18th century stalwart, the Pennsylvania Gazette, and in every imaginable local and regional paper amid the 19th century press explosion. The New York Times ran stories in the 1870s that included more fiction and were less reliable than other small town upstate papers. The widely popular men's sporting tabloid, the National Police Gazette, began to regularly feature such accounts in the 1880s. They were no more scandalous than accounts that had been published in mainstream dailies for over 100 years. The nearly indiscriminate and continuous reprinting of accounts of female husbands across colonial and national borders signaled both fascination and concern about sexual difference, gender roles, and marriage. By the mid-19th century, the women's rights movement took off in the United States. 
Campaigns for legal rights in marriage, dress reform, better wages, suffrage, and greater educational opportunities anchored the mainstream movement. While radical activists integrated racial justice with feminism, working for peace, Native American rights, the abolition of slavery, and expanded rights for free black men and women. Debates about the similarities and differences between the sexes were an important part of public discourse. Feminists had wide ranging views on the subject, though most agreed that trans and gender undermined their cause. Even the bloomers caused a stir that made many uncomfortable. Critics of women's political advocacy, autonomy, and equality used the language of gender to undermine their efforts by calling them masculine, manly, or at the very least, not womanly. Such rhetoric was rooted in older arguments that women who were too well-read might develop masculine minds. But this critique gained renewed potency as more women rejected conventional expectations by wearing bloomers, refusing marriage, and standing as political critics of slavery, war, and violence. John Smith worked as a tinsmith and a tinker in Albany, New York. Smith courted a widow named Mrs. Donnelly, who was noted as both respectable and hardworking, as most queer wives were. The pair was married in the North Methodist Church in 1842. After their marriage, Donnelly confided in a male friend that she wasn't satisfied with her marriage because her husband, quote, didn't do the thing that was right, end quote. This was not the tearful confession of a young girl to a close female confidant. This was a carefully worded claim that preserved Donnelly's sense of respectability while providing just enough information to inspire further action on her behalf. Michael McGuire literally took matters and Smith into his own hands. He decided that Smith's body held the key to their sex and attacked Smith, first verbally calling Smith madam and then shouting, yes, I will, and I'll know whether you are one or not. The physical assault was described as this in the press, quote, Mike seized hold of John Smith and tore his coat, vest, and saw, to his great surprise, that Mr. Smith was indeed a woman, end quote. Together, Mrs. Donnelly's critique of their sexual intimacies and McGuire's forceful exposition of Smith's chest served as the criteria for determining their sex and invalidating their gender. Smith's outing generated awareness that there actually was no legal basis for punishment for them because New York actually had no law against cross-dressing. This case also marked the beginning of editorial associations between educated activist women and laboring female husbands by suggesting that any woman who challenges gender norms might be susceptible to the idea that they could and or should live fully as a man and marry a woman. One stated, quote, this of course will serve as a warning to all ladies of a masculine turn of mind, not to carry the joke too far. If they get intimate with one of their sex, they will be sure to be found out. Popular attitudes in the press toward female husbands became generally more hostile. Observers might strategically use the term woman husband to reduce, erase, or minimize the threat of female manhood or female masculinity. The old phrase female husband connoted two things, sex and gender, whereas woman husband suggested one kind of thing, gender. This usage aims to naturalize the category of woman, conflate it with biological sex, and disguise all of the learned norms and behaviors that go into making one a woman. The 1850s and 60s were also marked by the growth of the carceral state and the professionalization of policing. This professionalization of policing targeted enslaved and newly freed African Americans, the poor, immigrants, and anyone who challenged the social order. Antebellum era views that saw and tolerated female sailors or female laborers out of sympathy that women's economic prospects were so abysmal seemed to fade away as the prospect of women's political and economic autonomy became a more real possibility 
and one that was vocally articulated. Gender nonconformity and transing was increasingly policed by the expansive policing forces, and new laws popped up in municipalities all across the country prohibiting cross-dressing. The British laboring tradition that had celebrated its workers, even those who transgenders, didn't really translate to the US, where people were more often subject to arrest and deemed vagrants for their efforts. For those assigned female at birth, living as a man was never without risk. And for some, it was filled with rife, hardship, and danger. Such was the case for Joseph Lobdell, a hardworking and resourceful person who grew up in Westerloo, New York. Lobdell had considerable responsibility in their family from a young age. As someone perceived as a woman, Lobdell was celebrated for their devotion and many talents, including a knack for hunting, farming, reading, writing, and teaching. They even published a memoir describing their early years, entitled The Female Hunter of Delaware and Sullivan Counties, in 1855. In it, Lobdell complained of the hardship of supporting a family on the wages available to women. They were confident that they could do the work that any man did, and they set off to do so, now presenting fully as male. This decision marked a new course in their life, one filled with new experiences, feelings of visibility and recognition in their manhood, and also many feelings of erasure and hurt in the face of hostility. Lobdell had their gender challenge repeatedly over the next several decades in the court of law, the court of public opinion, and finally at the behest of their birth family who had them declared insane and institutionalized in 1879. Their beloved wife of nearly 20 years, Marie Louise Perry, was misled by Joseph's brother James into believing that Joseph had died. James even circulated a false obituary in the newspaper. It took Marie nearly a year to find out the truth. Such was the cruelty with which family members and mental health officials treated those who transgender in the late 19th century. Lobdell's gender rendered them unfit to live freely, and this made Lobdell one of the first subjects of sexology in the U.S., whose life, gender, and sexuality were dissected under a microscope by Dr. P.M. Wise, and this was published in 1883. And I don't know if you can actually read that on your screen, but that's just an excerpt, uh, a famous excerpt from this case, which is one of the foundational texts of sexology. And it was written in reference to Joseph Lobdell. Okay, I'm coming to an end. Around the 1880s, the female husband moniker in the media no longer clearly established that the subject of consideration lived as a man. Annie Hindle was a famous actor known as a female assigned person who performed breeches parts in the theater. Hindle married their dresser, Annie Ryan, in Michigan in 1886, when Hindle presented themselves as a man named Charles. When Hindle died, a news report described them as a female husband to their wife and boasted, quote, the neighbors respected them. The outer world did not disturb them with its gossip that they could live together openly as husband and wife, the husband in female attire always, and yet cause no scandal, is the best proof of the esteem in which those around them held them." End quote. So now female husband described not only a relationship between a woman and a man assigned female at birth, but also a relationship between any two people who lived as women, no matter how masculine one may or may not be. The turn of the 20th century marked an increase in stigmatization of certain kinds of gender expressions. Doctors associated those who transgender with mental illness and sexual deviance, such as in the case of Joseph Lobdell. At the same time, there was a great expansion in the range of ways that people assigned female were able to relate to the category of woman, such as in the case of Annie Hindle. Female husband itself waned as a descriptor in the British and U.S. press after 1910. Sexologists characterized those who transgender identification as pathological and abnormal. The carceral state wielded its authority in the service of ridding society of those who threatened its order. These two forces together created tremendous incentives for people who were transing gender 
to make themselves as undetectable as possible, to find other routes to express and experience their gender, or to reframe their masculinity as a tool for realizing same-sex desire. In conclusion, despite all of its attendant hardships of a life of transing, this path was not without its privilege. Within the British Empire, settler colonialism, slavery, and war determined the conditions for and the parameters of most people's lives. Female husband narratives demonstrate a freedom, self-determination, and mobility that were hard to come by. Female husbands were not simply disruptors of heteronormativity and sexual difference. They were empowered by and helped to stabilize liberalism, including the white supremacy that was embedded in the gender binary. While most female husbands lived seemingly trans lives, they also demonstrate the tremendous overlap between categories of gender and sexuality, refusing a simple reductive reading with one or the other as a driving force. I hope that I have been true to the lives and legacies of female husbands and their wives in this telling. These accounts, like our lives, are marked not only by resilience, love, and joy, but also vulnerability, loneliness, and conflict. Female husbands and their wives lived extraordinary lives. This history has been written and it will not be erased. It is true and it belongs to all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. That was so fascinating. I feel utterly underread. I That was all new to me. And um, I invite all of you to use the Q&A feature to join the conversation or virtually raise your hand if you want to join in morally. Just to kick us off, I mean, before we even get into like the late 19th century, when you have the sort of institutionalization and the sort of treatment of female hus husbands as a kind of pathology, it doesn't seem like there's ever a time when it isn't treated with some kind of ridicule or stigmatization. I was particularly surprised to hear that there was just not a lot of accommodation in the women's rights movement in the antebellum mm. period. Did female husbands and their wives have any allies? Good question. I wish I could answer it. You know, we'd like to think so. Uh, I, I can't say that I have evidence to support that claim. There, you know, in some of the different feminist literature, both in the, you know, the 18th century, late 18th century version of it, and then into the 19th century, every once in a while, they'll reference, you know, either literally a female husband or someone who transgendered and lived as a man. And I think, it, you know, it was, most people saw that as a threat that would undermine their cause, because they were, you know, and I think the biggest difference here is class. Most of the organized activist feminists were at least middle class with a certain amount of stability and education. And they saw themselves as respectable women or as wanting to be so. And what female husbands and other, you know, trans figures were doing was just, you know, too far, too much. And they saw it as threatening and undermining their claim which is that we want more rights as women. We don't want to be men. We already have a, a good queue of questions for you. A lot of engagement here. Um, Bob Skiba writes, Jen, what do you think is the likelihood that the Charles and Charlotte Hamilton in male clothing referred to the 1752 Pennsylvania Gazette as having made their way to Philadelphia from England might be the same as the George Mary Hamilton well-known there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in my book, I, I offer speculation that we should take it seriously, that it, it could have been the same person. Um, you know, anyone who works with these records, as you do, Bob, understand um, how hard it is to, like, you know, prove such a claim. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, at this point, I think, I, you know, I researched that section so long ago, but I did come to some kind of speculative conclusion that it made sense because there was no evidence that some of the, I think, the distinguishing details of their story had been pushed out in the press in the UK. So it wasn't, it wouldn't be obvious for someone else to have gleaned the story and, and, and taken up this identity as their own because of some of the particulars. And I think also 
you know, maybe the other point that I feel more strongly is that I think people really underestimate what's involved in a gender identity and gender expression and being comfortable and confident in asserting yourself and, in car and carrying yourself in a gender that was different than the sex you were assigned at birth. And the idea that anyone could just do it, you know, with ease and pull it off and lift someone else's identity and story, I think really doesn't understand, you know, the kind of layers and the subtlety um, involved in, in that kind of life and in that kind of expression. Lawrence Bass asked, did any of these individuals give birth during their marriages? Some of them definitely gave birth, but I think always before their marriages. So Joseph Lobdell had a daughter um, from, by all counts, what was a terrible, abusive marriage that didn't last very long, that they didn't want to enter into, and their father sort of pressured them into. Um, and so Joseph Lobdell gave birth. I think Albert Gelf had at least one, maybe several children. I was able to verify one of them, I think, in the Rochester records, but possibly also some other children that they had had um, in England. So, and some of the queer wives, I think, for example, like Henry Stokes' second wife um, had a child from another relationship, and that child was said to, you know, fully embrace um, Henry Stokes as their father. Um, so there's a lot of different um, relationships to parenthood. The most remarkable thing to me is in the records, it's so seldom ever talked about, like in the newspaper accounts. There's, not, there's never a fuss made that someone was a terrible mother or a terrible parent or that, you know, how dare could you abandon your child, um, which is something that uh, more than one, you know, husband did do in the course of leaving home and leaving their family behind. An anonymous question that actually is one, it sort of echoes a question I had. Um, could you talk about vagrancy as a charge leveled against female husbands? Why that charge? What does it suggest? Yeah, I mean, it speaks to your opening comment, which is part of why the 18th and 19th century version of the story is so interesting is because you see regular citizens, public officials, ministers, police, even judges, not knowing what to do, right? So um, and there's some recognition or sense that um, someone transing gender is wrong and that it, this is the, the town shouldn't allow it or support it, but nobody, there's no clarity over what the proper response is or why it's wrong you know why it's something that they should punish and so you know vagrancy was just this catch-all charge used for literally one to two hundred different kinds of things throughout this period it's the easiest thing to do because you just throw someone in jail on a vagrancy charge there's no trial um it's it's a very loose informal thing that was you know usually used against poor people um, and, and most, most of the husbands would have been somewhere, if not in poverty themselves, definitely like kind of in the lower sorts um, uh, socioeconomically and subject to, you know, the intense regulation of vagrancy laws. I often ask myself why the, you know, the rise of anti-cross-dressing laws was seen as necessary because the vagrancy laws were just so capacious um, and, and seemed to do the trick, but there becomes this effort to really pin down in very precise ways, very specific um, crimes and, you know, and punishments. So, and that's part of a larger thing at the late 19th century. Fiona Ritchie, uh, thanks you for a fantastic talk. And she notes that you used they pronouns for female husbands. What led you to that choice? It was definitely the hardest decision. And I think, but ultimately became the vehicle that allowed me to even write the book. Um, I had known about female sailors and female soldiers for a long, long time and wanted to work more with those cases. Um, and just kind of have, and still, you know, to this day, 
struggle with how to make sense of their gender. And especially when so many of them follow a different trajectory, they transgender for a time, live as men for a time, and then most of them end up in some kind of heterosexual marriage. Um, but I felt like my intellectual contribution to this field was to put female sailors and soldiers in conversation with female husbands mm. and not to let them be separated as normative, right? Like uh, Robert Shirtliff, uh, Robert Gray, you know, these soldiers and sailors who are well-known figures in early American history versus, you know, female husbands as being the truly queer trans people. I want at least conceptually to bring them together. Um, and I think the other point is that some of the husbands were non-binary. So they moved back and forth between, you know, living and expressing, you know, male and female gender. And so I didn't want to reduce anyone. I didn't want to like force anybody into a he mm -hmm. um, that I could never prove or substantiate. And uh, a lot of the scholarship on these people in the past has switched back and forth, which I find just incredibly unsatisfying and lending itself to a s sense of a stable gender identity that I don't think is real, that they were really a woman for 17 years and then they were really a man and that that, that, that was just fixed. I think the, uh, the final reason, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is such a long answer, but is that the sources themselves go back and forth a lot. I wanted to pick something neutral so that my voice would be a neutral they to, so that the readers could encounter the sources and notice when a newspaper article used he or used she or often used both. And so that by stepping myself, my own authorial voice out of that um, binary, that it could also just allow the reader to have a more intimate experience with the historic record. An excellent answer. <laughs> now I totally understand all the thought that went into that. That's wonderful. Stephen Peitzman asks, what might be known about the lives of female at birth trans to male who did not marry? Are they necessarily more or more often lost to our awareness? So there's tons of references to these people in newspapers. And if you're so inclined, I encourage everyone to get and you know, jump online and explore. Um, the legal marriage allows you to establish a paper trail. Like it's a it's a legal record of a paper trail that allows you to verify the newspaper accounts as being actual people who lived and were, you know, uh, recognized by the state. So that is one of the things that led me to focus on female husbands, because by the very fact of transing, becoming men, and then, you know, I have like tax records, you know, there's just like a, a, a level of record keeping for men, especially if you were a property owner or, you know, um, if you had a legal marriage that doesn't exist for so many women, like so much women's work, it doesn't register, it doesn't catch on. So a lot of the records of people who are assigned female at birth and trans and live as men, they're really hard to flesh out and, and verify because the newspaper accounts will list their birth name. And then, and then you can't track them after that. They cha everybody changes their name and moves 10 times across the country, across the continent. So it's, it's, they're there and there is so much more really exciting work that can be done. It's just a challenge of method, uh, trying to figure out how you can, you know, reconstruct these stories and also show that, you know, they were real people and not just um, like a, a, a creation of a newspaper editor. Carrie Crawl, thanks you for a wonderful <laughs> I take it you know Carrie. <laughs> I'm so glad that he's expanding his horizons and taking <laughs> history. I love you, Carrie. Carrie wonders if you came across any male wives. I'm thinking of Armand from, forgive my French, Lacage au Foy. So there are lots of people who are assigned male at birth to transgender and live as women, also in the newspaper records. Female wives as a category didn't take off, it wasn't a thing. Um, it wasn't um, 
uh, I'm sorry, male wives, right? Male wives wasn't a category. And I think female husbands was a popular category because it, it came about in this era when lots of other occupations and roles that had been usually assumed by men um, were written about with, uh, uh, through the lens of gender. So, oh, a female politician, a female pirate, a female hunter, that all of a sudden there was this body of literature that was putting female ahead of these male occupations and categories. And there's not really anything analogous. But similarly, the records of people who were, you know, we might say are trans feminine, um, they're there. They're in the newspapers. They're really interesting. And again, there's more work to be done. So maybe in your free time, Carrie Crawl, if you would like to do some research, I could point you to some sources and I would love to see what you find. Homework. Everybody likes that. Becca <laughs> Davis uh, says, I love your book and thank you for this marvelous talk. You convincingly show the female husband was an idea that crossed the Atlantic from Britain to the U.S. I wonder if your research turned up any other influences or participants in the conversation of female husbands, whether from continental Europe, Mexico, indigenous peoples, or elsewhere? That's a great question. Um, I think if you want to write that book, Rebecca <laughs> Davis, I would love to read it. Um, I think that was, I don't know if it's there or not. Um, it's not something that I at least encountered in my research, uh, which could be just because of the constraints and the parameters that I set for my research. Um, I think one of the things that I wanted to do was uphold this one particular category and welcome and invite other people who are interested in trans history to identify and uphold the variety of other categories because, you know, there were others and other, lots of other transing experiences and expressions that don't fit into this paradigm. Um, and that, you know, I think over the next 10 to 15 years, this field is actually going to explode. And we can have some really interesting conversations then um, about these different trajectories and influences. I noticed this as well, that um, all these institutes appear to be um, white, white women, right? Mm -hmm. um, Laura Sperling asked, did you find any um, African-Americans, uh, particularly after the Civil War? So there are definitely... African-Americans who transgender in different ways, and I include some of them in the book. Um, and I'm sure in real life there were African-American female husbands. There weren't in the press, and I think that's the, the, the story, one of the reasons why I frame this as um, recognizing that the category was held up and written about in a certain way because of whiteness. That first of all, whiteness enabled a certain amount of mobility um, that wasn't possible for most African Americans during this era. Um, that when white people transgender and entered into a legal marriage, even though it was threatening, there was also something cute about it. Um, it helped kind of uh, play into this idea um, that is deeply bound in late 19th century ideas of uh, racial identity and gender difference. So the idea that the gender binary um, was most powerfully demonstrated and upheld by white men and women. And so I think that's one reason why the female husbands are all white. Um, and then I think, you know, the other piece of it, which I try to get at at least a little bit in conversation with C. Riley Snorton's work, um, which is this tremendous, you know, interdisciplinary take on Black trans history and literature, um, is the complex role of fugitivity and fungibility. Those are kind of two of his key concepts in his work, where for African Americans in the 19th century, their gender was seen as more fungible right, so that um, black men were so often denied their manhood and black women were denied their womanhood, and that that was a tool of racism and oppression. Um, and so holding them up and celebrating them in the way that female husbands were celebrated wouldn't really make sense. And then that all transing gender efforts by black people during this period were seen, were seen as 
utilitarian in order to escape slavery. Um, and so there's just this, there's these different taxonomies, I think, that if you were black and escaping enslavement, you don't get to have gender identity or expression or sexual desire, that that aspect of your experience and potential motivating factor, like, gets taken away from you. So it's not in the records. So I think you've answered the first half of this question from Taylor Garrison, but the second half is certainly worth some engagement. Uh, Taylor writes, Dr. Mannion, do you believe that the policing of female husbands is rooted solely in gender, or are there interesting intersections of race, class, etc.? But second, why did it ramp up at the turn of the 1900s? Well, it's 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 so bound up um, in <clears throat> anti-black racism and the Fugitive Slave Act, right? So it was just passed in the 1850s, and so suddenly everyone is becomes complicit with slavery that you're you're you know you're forced by law to monitor um any african-american people in public that this this becomes part of um the conversation and certainly in you know urban areas so i definitely think it's in some ways you know gender is yeah just a tiny piece of it it's you know it's the fight over slavery and freedom for black americans which fuels this dramatic expansion in policing. Um, it's also immigration, right? So the population of New York during this period in the 1840s and 1850s, when you really see the professionalization of policing and the quadrupling of the size of the police force happens in pretty strong correlation to the population growth itself um, inside the city. So I would never say that it was just solely about gender. Um, it was all of these other things. The, you know, my simple answer, I guess, is at least for, for, gender, for gender transing, the confluence between the expansion of policing and the carceral state in the late 19th century, which is, you know, in part fueled by um, concerns around gender norms and, and, and sexual morality and, and at the intersection of you know, racial norms as well. If I'm thinking about the work of Nyan Shaw and Claire Sears, um, that these things are by no means um, distinct from each other. Um, and then just the professionalization of medicine and the expansion of sexology and the way that people, you know, that people who subvert or challenge gender norms and sexual norms get kind of funneled off into this other piece, which, you know, you could easily argue is also part of the carceral state, um, but into mental health and psychiatric uh, regulation um, because of their sex and gender. We have a follow-up from uh, Stephen Peitzman who asks, um, did female husbands turn up in the 19th century in published fiction, such as serials or novels? You know, I think very little, because I, early on in this project, I did a lot of work at the American Antiquarian Society, and I really was working with the dime novel collections and, and the fiction, because that is one of the early places that you see these, you know, the, the well, there's all those, you know, cross-dressing is woven so, you know, everywhere through those kinds of accounts, um, but also like the female soldier, the female pirate, the female this, like that whole genre. The Fast Girl, I think, is like a popular one from the 1870s. And, you know, I don't think female husbands are really represented in that literature. And I hope someone proves me wrong. But, I, you know, mostly no. And I think that is an interesting question, is another reason why I decided to really uplift them and make them the center of the book, because we all know how much has been written on female soldiers in that genre and then also by scholars. And so why is it that female soldiers and female sailors were popular subjects of this genre of literature in the 19th century and then taken up by scholars um, in the 1980s and 90s when people started really doing these like queer and feminist close readings of those bodies of literature, but not female husbands? And my simple answer to that is because they were really queer subjects, mm -hmm. you know, like they actually had, they were in queer marriages and the soldiers and the sailors 
whether it was true or not, because I think that there is some evidence that the endings of some of their stories were fabricated. Like, you know, there's just this crazy, queer, really exciting uh, story of someone's life. And then at the end, it, there's just this paragraph like that's taken from sentimental fiction where, you know, they put on their dress and, and they learned to stop speaking so boldly and they met a man who loved them and everything was perfect. And they went off and, and lived a, had a happy marriage. So, you know, there's just like these endings that like don't fit at all with like the main story. Um, but that would make it <clears throat> palatable for the readers at the time. But yeah, why scholars haven't, you know, really kind of unpacked that uh, trend. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I've done some work in Beetle and Adams. I've never seen it. I mean, yeah, it's, but I'd love to see a project on that. I think that would be really mm -hmm. fictional representations. And that's like us. Let's write more books about absence. <laughs> <laughs> how, much, how much of my life have I spent trying to research and write absence? Yeah. Can somebody save me from myself? <laughs> well, on that topic, whenever I see a bunch of positive comments, knowing how much labor goes into um, making the absent presence, I, I uh, try to highlight it. You have comments from Scott Ziegler who says, this was so great. Thank you so much. Uh, Scott Wilds also chimes in, brilliant talk and book, Jen, no questions. Thank you, Scott Wilds. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, uh, Bob Skiba jumps in saying, Jen, my neck is sore from nodding my head in agreement with you <laughs> for this and for being such an inspiration. Uh, thanks, Bob. Thank you, too, for all your work. Well, this was delightful. Thank you so much, Jen, and for all of you who tuned in on a Thursday night, on a haunted evening in Thursday. If, uh, if uh, you want to continue the journey next Thursday, same time, same place, Megan Springgate will be talking about From Boston Marriages to the Lavender Menace, Queer Women in the Fight for Suffrage. Thank you all.